0: All right, let's pray together. Lord, we come to You today and we desire to sit at Your feet, Lord Jesus, and listen to Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We ask today that You would bless Your Word. God, help us to remember even now how powerful Your Word is, Lord. That nothing can stop You, Lord, from accomplishing Your purpose. God, Your Word is a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And we pray, Lord, that Your Word would fall like rain from heaven, Lord. That it would be manna to our souls today. God, help our unbelief. Truly, nothing can stop You, Lord. Not even a a camera and a live stream. Your Word is powerful and active. It's Your Word, Lord. And we ask You to use it today in the lives of Your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, Grace Community Church. We are about to dig into one of my favorite subjects in the Bible. I love to talk about this subject the believer's empowerment to live the Christian life. And this truth has been immeasurably helpful to me in my walk with Jesus. Of coming to understand not only does God call us to live the Christian life, but He thoroughly equips us in every way to keep His commandments. And so I aim this morning that we would be transformed in the language of Romans 12 verse 2 by the renewal of our mind. That we're going to give our minds this morning to the Word of God. We want the Word of God to renew us and to transform us into the image of Jesus. And so I want us to consider this morning the glorious breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and specifically I want us to consider what comes after our justification and I don't mean to downplay that uh, at that at all. our justification is glorious. A free justification by faith in Christ alone is glorious. Our title this morning, To the sermon is going to be justified now what? Now what? After we put our trust in Christ, after the record of sin is wiped away and gone, then what do we do? How are we to live the Christian life? And our text this morning is going to be Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through verse 24. And my desire is that you would be so encouraged this morning as you're reminded of how gracious God has been to equip you in every way. All the promises of God are yes to us in Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ. His grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom. God has been so gracious to us. We have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. Not only has the penalty of sin been canceled, the truth that we're going to probe into this morning is that the power of sin has been broken. And we just sang that to the Lord. I don't know if you know this, and Jake surely didn't plan this, but we sang these words to Christ. You are stronger. You are stronger. Sin is broken. You have saved me. And I want you to be so encouraged this morning that that's true for the believer. That's true that Jesus is stronger than sin and the power of sin has been broken. He's called us to warfare. He's called us to obedience to live the Christian life, but he's thoroughly equipped us for this work. In fact, you're so equipped to live the Christian life through the gospel, it's like walking into a street fight with a pocket full of nuclear weapons. This is how much grace that has been lavished upon us in Jesus. And so we're going to read our text together this morning, and we're going to glory in this precious breath of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, let's read it together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. For if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is God's word to us this morning, and we got a lot to cover, so I want to move quickly. We're going to probe four new realities from this text. We're going to cover a new position in Christ, a new conflict in Christ. A new power and a new direction. I'll say that again quickly for those who don't have the study guide this morning. A new position, verse 24. A new conflict, verse 17. A new power, verse 16. And a new direction, verse 22. Now we're going to start this morning with the last verse first. You say, why are you doing that? I want us to learn how to read the Bible as Christians. Okay, I want us to learn how to read the Bible like Christians. So this is helpful knowledge for you to store up. Okay, That every imperative in Scripture, like the commands in this text, specifically the command of verse 16, every imperative in Scripture is always rooted... In the indicatives of the gospel. Every imperative is always rooted in the indicatives of the gospel. Now these words come from the Greek uh, uh, tenses and and, and 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 the word indicative means the, the the indicatives of scripture, they tell us what God has done. What God has done. And the imperatives of Scripture tell us what we must do what we must do and in the hearts and the minds of Christians this is the gospel rhythms that we have to learn the duns, the indicatives always come before the do's the imperatives even if if the duns are the last thing mentioned in a passage like our passage this morning it might be last in the passage, but it's the first in the hearts and minds of Christians. The dones come before the do's. And so I want us to look at verse 24 first, because this passage tells us that something decisive has happened to every Christian. Something glorious. Something once for all. There's a new position that we have been granted and Jesus Christ. And so I want you to look at it this morning with me. Verse 24. Brothers and sisters, be reminded from the Holy Spirit this morning, you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Him. Done. You are His. His name is placed upon you. And you are His possession. Jesus identifies with you. And He calls you His very own you are his this morning and because you are his verse 24 tells us that something decisive something glorious has happened and the text proclaims to us this morning that our flesh listen has been crucified our flesh has been crucified now the key here is that you understand that because of the way this is worded in verse 24, this is not referring to something that progressively happens to the believer in the Christian life. That's true enough. That's just not what this text says. This text is pointing to something that has already been accomplished. It is part of the finished work of Jesus. It is an objective, once for all, glorious reality for every believer. Your flesh, brothers and sisters, has been crucified. Has been crucified. Dustin, are you saying that a a Christian's flesh is already dead? Let me be really clear on this point. Okay, No, I'm not saying that. The Apostle Paul. Speaking in the authority of the Holy Spirit of God is saying that. The believer's flesh is crucified, indicative, done. This is your new position in Christ. And this is what I was talking about as we head towards this text. This is that pocket full of nuclear weapons that we take into this spiritual fight with sin. We have been fully equipped for this task. Our flesh has been crucified. Now, every one of us knows why these indicatives are so hard for us to believe. And we nuance them to death to where at at the end of it, there's really nothing left to them. And the reason they're so hard for us to believe is they, they assault our daily experience. Because if all we looked at as believers was our daily experience, we would never conclude, brothers and sisters, that our flesh was crucified. In fact, we would conclude, and some of you are thinking right now, well, it sure sure doesn't feel like my flesh is crucified. In fact, last I checked, just a few minutes ago, for some of you, it was alive and well. It was kicking and screaming this morning. And we're definitely going to talk about that as we move through this text of our ongoing battle with the flesh. But first, we need to understand, appreciate, and glory in this death blow that Jesus Christ has delivered to our sinful flesh. Paul explains this. He, 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 he lays it out in verse 24, but he explains this in much greater detail in Romans chapter 6. And so I want to invite you to turn there with me and I want us to learn this morning to think Paul's thoughts after him. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read um, a chunk of this passage beginning in verse 4. What do we need to learn about this? Romans 6 verse 4. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ... Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to recognize that the way this is laid out in Romans 6, that Paul commands, in verse 11, that we adopt this new way of thinking. That's a commandment. You have got to learn how to think about yourself in this way. And this is why it's so helpful to remember that all sanctification, all transformation in the Christian life, according to Romans 12, 2, it comes... It's triggered by the renewal of the mind. The renewal of the mind. And that means that all of us need to get rid of these old patterns of thinking. You could call it stinking thinking. It's got to go. Paul says you have to learn how to think about yourself like this in Christ. And he directly applies this union with Jesus... this this way of thinking about ourselves, our identity as in Christ Jesus, this union with Jesus to daily personal sanctification. Alive to God and dead to sin. We have got to learn to view ourselves as joined to Jesus, already having undergone a death, and a resurrection like His. So, how does Romans 6 say the same thing that we looked at in Galatians 5.24? Romans 6.5 Our old self was crucified. Done. Before you ever get to obedience or... or or, or your response to a commandment that Jesus gives you. This is what the Bible says about your identity. Your old self was crucified. Verse 2, he says it like this. We died to sin. And he poses that question. If this is true about the believer, how could we possibly live in sin? You can't die to sin and live in sin. You can't. These are opposed to each other. And so who are we? We're in Christ Jesus. Jesus has decisively and once for all crucified our old man. That's the old us, the us with Adam as our representative. That's why it's so helpful to render that phrase, not the old self, but the old man. That's what the text says. This is us and Adam. Jesus dealt the death blow and he broke, brothers and sisters, the reign of sin. That's what we're saying to Christ. Sin is broken. Jesus broke sin's reign in our life and he broke sin's lordship in our life. The tyranny is over. No more. And there is no path forward for us in sanctification until these gospel bombs are pressed into our soul. Who are you in Jesus? What has Christ done? The tyranny is over. Sin is no longer your king. Jesus is your king. You have been delivered from the cursed and the fallen race of Adam and you have been placed in the chosen race and the royal kingdom of the beloved son of God. Done. Done. And so we get to glory in this together this morning. That one, once upon a time, you were dead to God and alive to sin. Now, because of grace and because of Jesus, you are alive to God and dead to sin. This is the glorious gift of the gospel, and it's, our, it's the fruit of union with Jesus. This is who you are, and you need to know it, you need to get familiar with it, and you need to praise God for it. Your status, your position in Jesus Christ. Many Christians fail in sanctification right here, because they wrongly think that they come into uh, you know, obeying God's commandments in this neutral place as though God hasn't done anything to equip them to obey His commandments. No, we drag our status in, our position, and we've got to learn how to fight in light of these things, in light of who we are in Jesus now, I told you, this is not the only thing that is true about us. Okay, It's not the only thing that is true about our flesh, that it's decisively once for all crucified. The Bible also tells us that there's this ongoing progressive battle with our flesh. And you say, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Well, the Bible does this all over the New Testament. That we're redeemed and yet waiting for the day of redemption. We're adopted and yet we groan for our adoption. That we are saved, have been saved, are saved, and are being saved. That we're justified but we're still waiting for the final verdict on the final day. New Testament theologians call this the tension between the now and the not yet. And we see this tension in our passage. Verse 24 tells us the flesh is crucified, Galatians 5. But then we see in verse 17 that that the flesh is battling. It's exerting its force, its power. And so we see this now and not yet tension in Galatians 5. And such is the Christian life. We have to understand our new position in Christ And then I want us to see this new conflict that Paul lays out in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. And, you know, all of us are saying... Yeah, I can identify with that. That sounds more like it right there. In fact, about 30 minutes ago, I remember this battle. Okay, This is the conflict that rages in the heart of every Christian. We have these two opposing powers in verse 17. The spirit and the flesh are at war. Now, a couple of qualifiers. These are important. When Paul uses this word "flesh," the word sarks in this text, this word can mean, you know, several different things in the in the New Testament, depending on the context that it's used. In fact, I asked my children last night, "What is the what does flesh mean?" And one of my children said, "It what's it's like? It's meat. It's like what you eat. You know, you eat the flesh." And we need to understand this. This is the Paul is not talking about the body in this text. Okay, there's a lot of really bad, bad, bad versions of the Christian life where body is bad, bad, bad. God created the body. We're t- all the commandments of God are to be lived out in a human body. Okay? The, the word here is referring to, fa- to our fallen humanness. Okay? Not, to our, not to our human bodies. Now, Another qualifier is we have these opposing powers in verse 17. They're completely opposed to each other, but they're not equal powers in verse 17. Okay. Um, the flesh and the spirit are at war, but the spirit is God. There is no power in the whole universe that can rival the power of the Spirit. So I don't want you to think about these as like arm wrestling back and forth and who's going to win. These are unequal powers in every way. And another qualifier is this, and I find this helpful. This is an example of what I meant by dragging status in to these imperatives. That the Christian has both of these realities, both of these forces exerting itself in in their souls. But the Christian does not identify equally with the flesh and the spirit that is warring within them. Now, this is their flesh. This is our flesh in this text. But we're not equally linked to the flesh and to the spirit. Say, what do you mean? Well, here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? That you're in this, you're in this battle with the flesh and the Spirit. They're waging war, but the Word of God, and we need to remember this, says you're not in the flesh. You are, you are in the Spirit. This is your identity, your position in Christ And so we got to learn that the Bible sometimes points to the same truth in substance but uses some different language to get there. And so who are we? Well, if we use the language of Romans 6, our identity is in Christ. If we use the language of Romans 8, our identity is in the Spirit. And so these opposing forces are at war within the believer, but the believer is in the spirit, not in the flesh. One more qualifier here is I'm calling this a new conflict in verse 17. And I want you to understand that the conflict is new because it's the presence of the indwelling spirit that actually produces the conflict. This is a new conflict because this is only experienced in the life of a Christian. So what's new about the believer? It's not the flesh. You always had that. Okay, not the flesh. But as a lost man or woman, the conflict wasn't there in your life because you didn't have the Spirit. It was a one-sided battle. But... Upon regeneration and the powerful grace of God, this new power has been implanted in our souls that makes war against the flesh. This conflict is new. The Christian conflict. Now I want us to press into this a little bit more. I want you to understand that this conflict, this warfare in verse 17, it's total. And I want to take a minute just to explain why it's all out total warfare. Just to use a cross reference uh, to define the flesh. In Romans 7 verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this. I know that there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. That's an amazing statement. That... It helps us to understand the nature of the flesh that according to Scripture, there's nothing good about it. That's an amazing statement. It's totally depraved. There's nothing good in the flesh. This is why the Scripture tells us it must die. It must be crucified. It must be put to death. It's totally corrupt. And that helps us to understand just how contrary these powers are at war within us you see the spirit is good only good and always good whereas the flesh is evil only evil and always evil and therefore there's no compatibility between the two this is like light and darkness, righteousness, and wickedness. This is why there will never be, in this conflict, there will never be a truce declared. A ceasefire. Not for a moment. Total, all-out warfare to the very end. To the very end. And this text is is one of the clearest places in the New Testament that shows us that the flesh is still present even in regenerated Christians, even after we're born again and the Spirit of God regenerates us and makes us new. This text is so clear that even in the life of a believer, this opposing power still exerts itself. And because of this reality and and the reality that every one of us have this flesh, our flesh, exerting its power and its desires in our soul, I want to make sure that there's no pampered views of our flesh that we're entertaining. And we can do that, right? That we have these pampered views of sin and sinful nature that we're not quite as bad as the Word of God says that we are. And so I want you to use that phrase in Romans 7 verse 18. And I want that to sink into our ears this morning. There is nothing good in the flesh. There is not one good thing in the flesh. There is only evil in the flesh. I'll say it this way. Your flesh, brothers and sisters, is capable of the most wicked acts that have ever been committed in God's creation. And the only reason that you have not committed such acts is because God has providentially restrained your flesh. It's not because your flesh is better than your neighbor's flesh. There's nothing good in the flesh, only evil. It is contrary to the Spirit of God in every way. And I want us to hate it like God hates it this morning. The Spirit hates the flesh. In fact, the Spirit hates the flesh so much that it wages all-out, never-ending warfare on the sinful nature. I want us to hate the flesh like the Holy Spirit hates the flesh. Its works are filthy, And those who walk in the flesh, this text tells us they will never see heaven. Never see heaven. Let's pick it up again in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these i warn you as i warn you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god now i want you to just take a quick glance down that list of sins And I want the simplicity and the weightiness of this warning to land upon us. You cannot live in these sins and go to heaven. You cannot live in these sins and go to heaven. Brothers and sisters, this text is a hammer to reveal false conversion fake pretend faith in Jesus Christ that honors Jesus with the lips and then lives like hell. In fact, this this text has a special place in my own life. This very text is the text that God used to strip me of false confidence, to expose in my own soul false conversion. That on the one hand, if you ask me as a lost man, are you saved? I say, yeah, I prayed the prayer. I trust in Jesus. And then the fruit of my life is like, a, is like a laundry list of these sins. And I'll never forget the day where the Holy Spirit just allowed the clarity, the simplicity of these words to land on my soul. Paul says, I tell you again, as I told you before. He says this all the time, brothers and sisters. It's it's like a throwaway phrase. It's so so clear that you can't live in these things and go to heaven. Those who live in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, how many deceive themselves right here? And, And such is the nature of the deceitfulness of sin... That it can't get any clearer in God's Word. That you cannot live in this way and inherit the kingdom of God. But the deceitfulness of sin tricks, deceives. And you. Have, how many do you know, maybe even you this morning, that you've come to believe the exact opposite of what we have clearly in this text. You believe that you can smuggle one of these sins into heaven. You believe that God is not going to make good on His word. You believe that you can have Christ and sin. And this text reveals the clarity that you cannot live in the works of the flesh and inherit the kingdom of God. Inherit the kingdom of God the works of the flesh are evident are evident now i want this to be so clear we'll come back to this later what paul is not saying is that a christian can't commit any of these sins in this list a christian can commit every sin in that list be forgiven restored and walk with god and go to heaven every single one of those sins can be committed By a Christian, but the works of the flesh are evident. What Paul has in mind here is the pattern of someone's life, your character, what you're known for, what you live in, where do you walk? And if we're honest, we know many who claim to follow Christ and they walk around in these sins sexual immorality. The Bible says that this is not even supposed to be named in the church of Jesus. And yet how common has it become? It's, it's, it's almost as common you know, as, as, a, as a throwaway phrase. Of somebody struggling with, with sexual sin. Not turning away from sexual sin. Brothers, I want to encourage you to let this land on you. Look at what the text says. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need to repent. You need to repent. The only hope that we have for conquering, overcoming the works of the flesh is the power of the Spirit. This is why God gave us the Spirit. He knows that. This is why we've been equipped out for this battle. We need the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what God has given us in Christ Jesus. Jesus did not leave us by ourselves in the battle with the flesh and say, Hey, you got this enemy named the flesh. He's really powerful. Uh, You should overpower him. Good luck. He didn't leave us by ourselves. He came with us. He is our victorious king. He lives in us by his spirit. Jesus told his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Are you encouraged by that this morning? You're not an orphan in the kingdom of God. Jesus came to you by his spirit. He lives in you by his spirit the spirit of jesus the spirit of christ and the bible tells that he do, tells us he dwells in us forever forever not just a temporary savior he's fully equipped us for the christian life which brings us to this command in verse 16 this recognition of this new power Brothers and sisters, we must walk by the Spirit. That's the imperative. That's the command. How, how much attention are you given to this commandment in your Christian life? Walk by the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. This is the power for obedience to God. In fact, this is a fulfillment of, Of Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel 36, he prophesied, I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit will will I put within you, God says, and I will put my spirit within you, God says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey. My rules. This is God's provision. For our victory. For our obedience to Him. That He would give His Spirit to us. That He would plant His Spirit in us. And the commandment that we have in verse 16. Is to live in light of this reality. Walk by the Spirit. God's given you the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Holy Spirit. Or to use the language a little bit later in Galatians. Keep in step with the Spirit. Follow the Spirit since you live by the Spirit. Now I want to mention a few things about this commandment. It's so helpful in several different ways. One, it shows us the root of all obedience. It's a a foundational command. In the sense that you can't do anything else that God tells you to do until you obey this text. Does that make sense? You can't, uh, if you want to um, preach the gospel to all nations, you can't do that until you walk by the Spirit. If you want to love your wife as Christ loved the church, well, can't do that until you walk by the Spirit. You need the Spirit, His power for all the other things that God has commanded you to do. It's a foundational command. And the backside of that is it also shows us the root behind all of our sin. Shows us the reason why we sin. What I mean by that is this. The reason why you practice sexual immorality, the reason why you walk in paralyzing anxiety, the reason why you don't love your spouse is not because, fill in the blank, because you're sick, because you have hard circumstances. It's not because you had a really hard life and nobody understands you. And if they could just understand you, then you might be able to obey God. It's not because of that. Your sin is not because of your circumstances. Now I want to say this. There are many of you who have been greatly sinned against and I hate that for you. You've had bad things happen to you and I hate that for you. But I love you enough to tell you this. That's not why you sin. You don't sin because bad things happen to you. Brothers and sisters, you sin because you're not walking in the Holy Spirit. God has perfectly equipped you to obey Him. The third person of the Trinity lives within us. As a seal within us, a guarantee of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The reason you sin is because you don't walk in the Holy Spirit. Notice the promise in verse 16. If we would, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Read that backwards. If anyone is gratifying the desires of the flesh, it automatically means they're not walking in the Spirit. But it also shows us how much more powerful the Holy Spirit is than our flesh. Because if we would just walk in the Spirit, the flesh would be rendered crucified. We'll not walk in the gratified, the desires of the flesh. Your sin is powerful. Your sinful desires are are powerful. But there is no power in all the created order that can rival the power of God's Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul prays for Christians that our eyes would be torn open, that we would come to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Your sin is powerful, no doubt. But it's no match For the immeasurably great power of God's Spirit. So it's a foundational command. Shows us the root of, of all of our disobedience. But this commandment also reminds us of the supernaturalness of the Christian life. And I want to be careful with that phrase. Here's what I mean and don't mean. You know, in one sense, the Christian life is the most natural human thing. Uh, it's humanity, human life as it's meant to be. But in a fallen world, it's supernatural in the sense that our human resources cannot produce Christian obedience. The Christian life is supernatural. We need God's Spirit to obey God's commands and I'll say it this way you are no more able to live the Christian life in your own strength than you are able to justify yourself let that land on you as as much as you plead for mercy and say Lord I can never stand before you in my own righteousness in the same way you ought to plead before the Lord of Lord I cannot obey you In my own strength. You ought to plead for mercy. And you ought to seek righteousness and strength from your God. Only in the Lord can be found righteousness and strength. Forgiveness of sin and power to obey. You need the Holy Spirit. You cannot do anything that God has commanded you to do apart from the Holy Spirit. This is the commandment, Uh, this is the reality that these Galatian Christians forgot. Earlier in in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, we find out that these Christians were bewitched or seduced into this false way of thinking. And Paul admonishes them, you began the Christian life by the Spirit, and then he indicts them. But you're trying to be made perfect by the flesh. Why in the world would you do that? Stick with, stick with what you started with. You started with the Spirit, stick with the Spirit. And this is the command here, to walk by the Spirit. I want you to think about how many of us are guilty and how many times over we are guilty in our own life of trying to live the Christian life in our own resources. And that's what this commandment is pushing against. Don't do that. Walk by the Spirit. I want to remind us this morning that we cannot use human weapons against the flesh. It has no power in this realm. Things like human wisdom, human pragmatism, you throw it at the flesh with all your might, does nothing. It has no effect. It has no power in this realm. It cannot restrain this monster. Willpower? Nothing. Prayerless striving to obey God. No power. Rigid, Christless asceticism, harsh treatment of the body can't even restrain this monster, the flesh. They have no power against the flesh the only thing that can overcome the flesh is walking in the Holy Spirit. We have got to learn this. We have got to learn this. Trying to go to war against your flesh with human resources is a little bit like a, a, a man, a soldier, taking a plastic toy squirt gun into the trench warfare of World War I. Dead bodies stacking up all around him. Shells going off everywhere. Life and death is on the line. And you're coming at this with a toy squirt gun? This is what we do when we strive to obey God in our own resources. You've heard the phrase, fight like a man. You need to fight like a man. I want to encourage you this morning to fight like a Christian. I want to encourage you this morning, don't bow up and fight like a man. Get weak and trust in the Holy Spirit. Feel your weakness and let it cause you to lean hard on the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. I want to give you just a, just a, a simple way to say this. If all you bring is willpower to obey God, bootstrap Christianity, you're going to get whipped. You're going to get worked over. You're going to work yourself to the bone and five, ten years in, you're going to realize, I haven't made any progress. I'm going nowhere. Because we must walk by the Spirit. A couple more things here. That word walk shows us that this is not an automatic thing. That there's an effort that's required. Okay, this is not passive. This is a commandment. Walk by the Spirit. This is a deliberate act that we take. And it also shows us that this is part of daily life and even moment-by-moment life of these acts to yield to God's Spirit. And this, this is really a grid for every moment of every day, that every act that we're engaged in is either going to be yielded to the spirit or it's going to be yielded to the flesh. In other words, there's no uh, mushy middle, morally neutral third category. You're either you're either yielding to one or the other at every moment. And so this is a command for us to deliberately deliberately yield to God's spirit. Follow God's Spirit. Trust in the power of God's Spirit in everything we do. Deliberately. Not, oh yeah, I know about the Holy Spirit. I hadn't prayed about the Spirit's work in my life in three months, but oh yeah, I know that Holy Spirit stuff. No, walk by the Spirit. Ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Deliberately put your trust in the Spirit's power and not in your own. Maybe it would help you if you were to see that this commandment is basically synonymous with the command in John 15 to abide in Christ. Jesus commands his disciples to abide in him. To draw strength. Uh, They're they're the branch. He's the vine that the branches would draw strength from the vine. In the same way that we would draw strength from God's spirit. Like a branch draws nourishment from the vine. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter commands us that those who serve are to serve in the strength that God supplies. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Everything you do, make a conscious effort To do it in the strength that God supplies. We ought to hate bootstrap Christianity. We ought to hate that stuff. That's a work of the flesh. And we need to yield and trust in God's powerful spirit at work within us. Finally, I want to mention that this word walk, it implies that you're going somewhere. There's a destination that you're headed to. And yet, at the same time, the word implies that you haven't arrived at that destination. If you were arrived there, you wouldn't be still walking, right? And this is important because, because some have twisted this passage and other passages like this in the New Testament to teach that a moral perfection is attainable in this world on this side of the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And I want to point out uh, with this walk metaphor that Paul is not teaching moral perfection, but he's highlighting this new direction of a believer's life. The word walk helps us see that, and also the word fruit helps us to see that. Paul uses this agricultural metaphor, fruit, and this shows us that Paul has taken the long view. Okay? Fruit is something that doesn't happen immediately, instantaneously. It takes time to produce fruit. And this is one of the things that helps us to see that the Apostle Paul, what he has in mind in Galatians 5, is someone's pattern of life, the long view, your character. He has that in mind in the works of the flesh. He also has that in mind in the fruit of the Spirit. And so the reality that we see here is that the Spirit produces this new direction over the long haul. The pattern of someone's life becomes righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. The pattern of someone's life will identify them with one or the other of these lists. That's the point. What becomes your character? What are you known for? What is the fruit of your life? The works of the flesh? Or is it the fruit of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit's leading and producing the fruit in our life confirms that Jesus is our Savior. Confirms that Jesus is our Savior. This is evidence of Jesus saving us. Delivering us progressively from the works of the flesh. Another thing helpful about fruit is you can see it. Okay? It's not a mythical idea that, that someone just thinks they're the awesomest Christian in the world. No, this is verifiable. Others can see the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. They're discernible over the long haul. Listen to how this is said in Galatians chapter 6. Verse 8. This is what's at stake. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. I want you to understand that that means eternal damnation. And to prove it to you, I want to keep reading this sentence. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life now this text is not teaching work salvation that you earn eternal life neither is this text teaching that if you commit one of these sins you're damned forever this text is warning you that the pattern of your life reveals the presence or the absence of the spirit of jesus in your life the leading of the holy spirit the producing of the spirit's fruits is evidence that Jesus is saving you. The absence of the leading of the Holy Spirit, the absence of the Spirit's fruit, is evidence that Jesus is not saving you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. That's Paul's language in Romans chapter 8. So this is life and death of how we respond to this commandment in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. I want to mention two more things. This agricultural metaphor of fruit reminds us to be patient as Christians. Christian maturity is more like a crockpot meal than a microwave dinner. In the sense, we're talking about fruit bearing. We're talking about growing something in the backyard. That doesn't happen. Plant it today, have it tomorrow. This is a call for patience. You cannot have Christian maturity instantaneously. We have to be patient as the Spirit produces fruit in us. This godly character that's laid out for us in verse 22, this takes time for the Spirit to produce in our life. And this is what Paul encourages these Galatians with. Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not grow weary... And doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And I want to encourage you to do that. Be patient, take heart, don't give up. Be patient and yield to the Holy Spirit. There is immeasurably great power available to us who believe. And my last encouragement as we wrap up this text, is to encourage you to focus on Jesus Christ. Focus on Christ. I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but oftentimes I've seen this list treated as a list of isolated virtues disconnected from Jesus. Chasing the fruit instead of the fruit giver, Jesus Christ. So it looks something like this, that I'm going to do a 12-week Bible study, this week, I'm going to work on love. Next week, I'm going to work on joy. Next week, I'm going to work on peace. By the time I get to the end of the list, I start, started failing at the first part again, so I'll just start back over. Work on joy. Work on peace. Work on goodness. Isolated virtues disconnected from Jesus. So I want to mention something that I think will be helpful to us is that the word fruit in this passage in verse 22 is in, in, in the Greek text. It's in the singular. And that's significant because you put it beside the list, the works, plural, of the flesh. Why, why in the world, would, would, would since we have all these virtues that are listed, why the singular? Why the singular in this text? And I think there's an encouragement for us regarding the unity of Christian growth. The unity of godly character. I think that we should view this list in verse 22 as a beautiful, singular, unified description of Christ-likeness. In other words, who embodies the fruits of the Spirit? This is Jesus. This is what Jesus is like. This is Christ-likeness, this beautiful portrayal. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Beautiful description of our Savior. And this is what the Spirit produces. What does the Spirit bring forth in our life? This is the fruit right here. This is what it looks like. Not this one-sided monster, you know, of this Christian that, man, he's so loving, but he has no gentleness. Do you see how... It's almost impossible to think about growing in one of these areas in isolation to the other as though we could grow in patience and not in self-control, as though we could grow in love and not in faithfulness. They're a unity. They're a unity. It's fruit. And I think this will help us focus not on individual virtues disconnected from each other, But it will help us to remember that the Spirit's goal is to make us like Jesus. He is conforming us to the image of the beloved, perfect Son of God. And I think that's a wonderful prayer for us to pray. Holy Spirit, make me like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our souls to you this morning. And God, I pray for your saints today. God, I pray that You would encourage their souls, that You would strengthen them with power in their inner man, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith today. Lord, I pray that You would overwhelm them with Your kindness of how faithful, gracious You have been to us in the Gospel. And Lord, I pray for those who are stumbling, who are warring with sin. I pray, God, that You would deliver them by Your mighty, powerful Spirit. Lord, deliver Your people. Deliver us from sin. Save us from our sins, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.